This week, Jim Routh, CISO of Aetna, joins us. In the Enterprise Security News, we're going to talk about breaking glass for privileged accounts, next-generation firewalls, independent security testing, kill switches, decryption tools, firewall management, and the end of EUBA. All that and more on this edition of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. about PCI compliance? Does your development team understand or care about security? Are you ready to face a breach of your customer's sensitive data? See the worst that can happen before it does. Black Hills Information Security can help you help management see the future. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a web application penetration test can mitigate the risk before you go live. IT Pro TV, an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. Access over 2,000 hours of up-to-date, high-quality video content live and on-demand via Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, PC, and your mobile device. IT Pro TV's premium membership grants access to all courses, transcripts, virtual labs, and transcender practice exams. Corporate and group pricing are available for a free 7-day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account. Visit itpro.tv forward slash enterprise security and use the code ES30. Logarithms Netmon Freemium delivers real-time network visibility to quickly identify emerging threats in your IT environment. Netmon Freemium is a free commercial-grade network forensics and traffic analytics solution. You can use Netmon Freemium's powerful capabilities to search against all observed network traffic, identify abnormal traffic patterns and application usage, and quickly analyze full packet captures. Take the first step towards real-time network visibility. Visit logarithm.com forward slash freemium to learn more and download it today. Welcome, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. I'm your host, Paul Asadarian, broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, reporting on the Enterprise Security News for Thursday, February 23rd, 2017. Uh, before I introduce our uh, guests and hosts, just a couple of quick announcements. IT Pro TV courses include Cybersecurity Analyst Plus, CCNA CyberOps, ITIL Operation Support and Analysis, Penetration Testing, Networking Plus, and Ethical Hacking V9. IT Pro is introducing a new membership level soon. All current Platinum members will be granted the highest membership level available. Sign up today, itpro.tv forward slash enterprise security, and use the code ES30 to save 30% off for life. InfoSec World 2017 conference is being held April 3rd through the 5th in Orlando, Florida. Security Weekly listeners receive a 10% off discount when using the code OS17-SW. Here talks from Kevin Johnson, Rich Mogul, Corey Doctorow, and more. Visit infosecworld.misty.com to register today. The 10th anniversary of Source Boston is being held in April, including training sessions held on April 24th through the 25th and conference talks the 26th through the 27th featuring speakers from the security community. Events will take place in Boston in the courtyard downtown Marriott and Security Weekly listeners get a $100 off discount on either the training or conference passes when using the discount code Security Weekly. Visit Source Conference for more information. 
on the lines via Skype, filling in for Mr. John Strand, is none other than Michael Santarcangelo. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, instead of John Strand, you get a guy from the Grand Strand. That's right. So that's, that's how we're going to work it today. <laughs> our uh, special, so we're going to jump right into our uh, interview segment uh, with Jim Routh, the CISO for Aetna. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Um, start by just telling our listeners a little bit about you and your, your background in information security. So I've, uh, I was a history major as an undergrad. I have no idea how I ended up in security, how this happened. But uh, You can help us when we talk about history on the show. Sure. It tends to be a, kind of a train wreck. <laughs> uh, so I um, started in IT uh, and um, uh, spent about 15 years in IT starting as a consultant and then doing enterprise IT uh, management uh, for American Express. Uh, and then um, I did some compliance work when I was in IT, and uh, I had to move back to New York. Uh, I was living in Minneapolis at the time. I loved it there. Uh, but my wife, one night at dinner, said, look, the kids and I are moving back east. You interested in coming? <laughs> and uh, so I said, yeah. Yeah, I that's a good, good yeah. answer. Good yeah. answer. So, uh, so I ended up going back. I took a job in the business. And I basically um, supported uh, models, uh, econometric models used for behavioral analysis on um, the domestic card business. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then that merged with risk models, so we are doing the two kinds of modeling. And I ended up reporting the chief risk officer. And at the time, the CIO said, we need a CISO. We need one of those. That was like a checklist thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we said, yeah, give it a, give it a whirl. So that's actually how we got uh, involved in security. Then I went to uh, DTCC, which is kind of like the back office of uh, Wall Street, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, did that for six years. And that's where I really cut my teeth and learned a lot about uh, uh, security. Uh, and then I've had other CISO jobs uh, and other senior uh, security jobs and uh, switched to healthcare four years ago mm -hmm. uh, and joined Aetna. And uh, that's what I'm doing right now. And uh, I run uh, a converge function, so uh, cybersecurity and physical security. So uh, it, it's interesting when we talk about the CISO role today. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't go down the CISO route because I think, I think CISOs have a really tough job today, especially as we talk about all of the different security solutions that are available today. We talk about how everyone's processes need to be like laser sharp. But in your mind, like, what are some of the newer, more challenging things that you've encountered as a CISO? So one of the things that's interesting is when I started in security, the formula for success was very predictable and straightforward. You found a cybersecurity framework, and you, that was really a business decision. So you, get, you took NIST if you were a domestic company. If you're a global company, you took ISO 27001. But you took a framework of some kind, and you said, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the blueprint. So what we're going to do is we're going to implement those control capabilities and those policies and align our practices with those policies, mm -hmm. and we're going to measure the maturity of our ability to do that. Right. We got um, a firewall, stop some packets, we're good. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so that's how it started. Now, um, what's changed today for the CISO is most of the decisions that I make today have nothing to do with conventional controls mm -hmm. from a conventional risk uh, framework. It did really stem from governance, compliance, and, and risk earlier on. It I remember that's like was, how I got my start, I would say too. it's driven yeah, by that. Yeah, because like and, uh, audit would come and say, well, we need to do like a security audit, and they right. just ask you a bunch of questions about your policies and practices. Exactly. And then as like nerds, we're like, well, we can do like more than that, right? Like we got all this technology to play with, and I think it's truly evolved. Out of, out of that, I don't know, out of that, is there still a... So today, 
it's unconventional controls where we're doing most of the investment. And mm. we're basically mm. understanding the shifts in threat actor tactics and then adjusting. Mm -hmm. Now, as an example, the, the, the mature program of the past never changed their controls because they were mature, mm -hmm. stable, and measured against the compliance framework, right? Mm -hmm. Today, we change control procedures and standards once a day on average. That's, and that is, today, the sign of maturity and resiliency in a cybersecurity program because threat actor changes, threat actor uh, tactics change, we have to change and respond. So we're responding to changes of the threat landscape. We're not responding to changes in the framework because they take a while. They, they, they're only done once a year on an annual basis, right. and they trickle in. They're not... And that's all in the conventional control space. Most of the work we're doing today is in the unconventional control space. So we're doing due diligence in unconventional controls and demonstrating due diligence in conventional controls. Mm -hmm. Those two things don't necessarily line up, but that's what we have to deal with today. You mentioned threat actors. Uh, what's your view on threat intelligence uh, as it's been a hot buzzword, especially this year and even last year as well? In a risk-driven security program, uh, risk has to be understood in the context of security intelligence because of the changes in uh, intelligence. So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, in 2016, there was anywhere from a billion to three billion credentials that were stolen okay, mm -hmm. in, that, in, in that time frame. Now, um, whether it's a billion or three billion, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And what, that, what happens is that information is being used by threat actors in automated ways to credential stuff our websites. And so essentially you, you take 10,000 uh, user ID and passwords and hit any enterprise, you're gonna get a 2% return where you'll take over accounts for 2% of all the ones you hit. If you put a prefix in front of the password, like Aetna password123.com, you get up to 4%. At 4%, um, a hit ratio, the economics are compelling. Mm. That's what we're dealing with today. And, in, and the assumption that only you have your password are no longer valid. Right. Now, uh, in that context, you're talking about employees of Aetna or customers of your services that also have Both. login. And that's a difficult... Companies I talk to are like, it's really hard. Like, we can get a lot of help for people that work for Aetna, but... Uh, your users are the general population. Mm -hmm. how, how do you know or notify or protect them when their credentials are stolen? Well, the first thing we do um, is we use something called DMARC. Mm -hmm. um, so any email that we send, we're authenticating that email to the ISP, and we're telling the ISP, don't deliver any email that purports to be from Aetna unless it comes from our servers. Oh, that's interesting. So mm -hmm. we're eliminating phishing and spam mm -hmm. from them. Now, the flip That's side, awesome. that we, yeah, get, like that. we get a 10% return or increase on click-through rate every year since we implemented it three years ago. And that return means our email campaigns, which about uh, 2 billion emails a year, are largely driven on improving health and improving behavior of our consumers. Right. The healthier they are, it drives our profit up. So by putting better security in place, we actually <laughs> increase profit. That doesn't happen very often. Wow. Every how about that now. for return on investment, Michael? I'm, I'm <laughs> thrilled with it. But so how much does it cost to do DMARC? Is there, 
Is there a cost to doing that? Is it, and, is, and is it a fixed fee or is it an ongoing? How does that work? You know, it does cost something. I think I have enough money in my pocket here to yeah. cover the cost. So <laughs> I, I think that, that'll just about do it. Uh, yeah, it doesn't cost ah. a lot. It, uh, there's a little bit of herding cats in terms of getting all of the vendors that send email on your behalf yeah. to use SPF and DKIM in the DMARC public. Yep. So, and, and yep. DMARC standards. So mm. there's cost. I don't want to minimize it. But frankly, uh, the, look, the cost is pretty low. And the return is significantly high because you're improving the risk to your end consumer, which mm-hmm. is what uh, yeah. your question was, but you're also improving the bottom line at the same time. So there's, there's no That's good fantastic. reason not to do this, yeah. um, and there are compelling economic reasons to do that. And so CISOs need to just talk business terms and say, hey, look, go to the sales and marketing people and say, would you like to increase your email return, your click-through rate? Yep. By ten percent a year, and you know if no, they say yes. no, then fire them. Yes, get get I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of uh, CISOs I talk to, or the groups that are working for CISOs, are like, "Hey, we have to research not just threat intelligence, but there's this somewhat newer space emerging where, uh, for lack of a better term, dark web monitoring." So. The organization goes out on the dark web and sees that people are trading lists of your users or mounting some attack against healthcare organizations is on the list. Are those services, in your opinion, valuable? And, you know, if they are, how do you maximize their value? Yeah, I'd say they're essential. Um, and, you know, the dark web is an ecosystem, and that ecosystem has markets in them. And those monitoring those markets is absolutely essential because it basically it's putting a monetary value on the information that's being harvested, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I care about healthcare information of our members, and I want to see what people are using it for and how they're monetizing that. That helps me understand what controls to put in place. So, absolutely essential. And um, you know, we've been doing it for. Uh, probably three years, mm-hmm. and what we do is like when the PonyBot dump, you know, gets published, mm-hmm. we go through it, we parse the data, and we match up all the credentials that align with our members and mm-hmm. with li- our employees, and then we force password reset for for them as a result. Awesome. Now, having said that, we're doing that about once every other week now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. With yeah all the, the frequency has increased. Yeah, yes, the, and so the reality is binary authentication controls are obsolete. Mm-hmm. And the uh, plethora of uh, credentials that are available in the black market are is the tangible evidence of that. And unfortunately, in most enterprises, 99% of our controls are binary. Binary is like uh, user ID and password, I'm in mm-hmm. and trusted. And if I don't have it, I'm out, one or the other, in or out. So authentication was um, an event at the front end of the application. And only, it was like, uh, once you passed it, you were good. Mm-hmm. Authentication has to be based on behavior, and it has to be integrated in the entire life cycle of the application so that a behavioral risk score is determining the risk at different junction points, alerting the app to determine how much functionality to serve up. And if that sounds futuristic, it's actually all about math. Well, it's, yeah, yes, a lot of uh, security technologies are today. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's models driving the behavior pattern and then identifying anomalies outside that behavior pattern. Now, So it's not just implementing two-factor authentication? That doesn't solve everyone's problem? It's not. <laughs> unfortunately, multi-factor right. authentication is better than single-factor mm-hmm. and absolutely insufficient. Um, because of what you just said once they get through that initial... Exactly. Yeah. 
So it, there's nothing easy about this because we have to change behavior of consumers. And right. some consumers are going to say, wait a minute, you're taking away my password? How do I know you're more secure? Mm. Right? And that's an education process. That's a challenge in the best of circumstances. So we're, we're um, implementing behavioral-based authentication today mm -hmm. for both our enterprise users and our uh, consumers. Uh, and it's going to take us probably three years to complete the full rollout. And frankly, for those consumers that want to keep the password, we'll, we'll allow them to keep it. Mm -hmm. The others are going to get less friction, better customer experience, mm -hmm. and better security simply because the percentages, we think we can do it at about 0.5% uh, error rate. Mm -hmm. And um, today, uh, as I pointed out, with credential stuffing, we're already at a 4% error rate. So we think we can beat it from a mathematical standpoint. Hmm. So when you say behavior-based, what does that mean? How do I authenticate to the system? So um, as an example, uh, I don't have my cell phone here, but if I did, uh, mm -hmm. pretend I'm, I'm holding it here, um, I use three or four apps continually. And, um, and if I have an app on that device, I know what apps I use continually. And then I just have to see how I hold the device for those apps, that's a signature of me, in, from a behavioral standpoint, using those apps. So I create a model that uh, identifies that as an attribute. Well, there happen to be somewhere between 60 and 80 attributes that are available to us mm -hmm. that we can model. And then we stack each model on top of each other, and the aggregate gives us a risk score predicated on the behavioral attributes. That risk score tells the app how much functionality to provide. So if my risk score is high in terms of uh, my threshold, then I'm going to get full functionality. Or the better, uh, another way of saying it, if my risk score is high, I'll get limited functionality. If my risk score is low, I get full functionality. So um, the, the behavioral model is communicating the app, giving a number, and the app decides what to do with that number. Hmm. And that's throughout the interaction of the app. So it's, a, it's, it's integrating behavioral capability throughout the application life, life cycle. I like that it, it closely mirrors some of the things that are happening with uh, log analysis, with network traffic analysis. And I think largely there's an industry where like, oh my God, they talked about machine learning and AI. Like, here we go. There's buzzwords that can never work. But it all depends on the application of it and how you execute and what processes you're so tying I, around it. I'll tell you something surprising that I, I didn't expect. Um, UBA and machine learning capability out of the box today from product vendors, and there's five that come to mind that mm -hmm. I can think of right off the top, and all five of them we've tested significantly and, and had in production for the last uh, year or so, um, they're a lot easier to use than I ever anticipated. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a lot cleaner in terms of the number of alerts that uh, come, up, come about. So we've put... Uh, uh, user-based or, or privileged user monitoring in, in place in production. We've been running it for almost uh, maybe six, seven months now. And the, the error rate is very, very low, and it gets better because the models improve. So technology has really uh, jumped forward, giving us capability to actually deploy models in real time in a highly effective way, and that's going to continue. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's really interesting. I have... Users, you're not the first user to say that UBA, however you slice it and dice it, the reference today was which vendors are going to be 
um, supporting your UBA? Is it going to be your SIM vendor? Is it going to be a separate UBA vendor? Is it going to be one tied to your privilege in identity management? And I've seen vendors in all those different spaces have so their own what, UBA. Yeah, so what I can tell you is um, typically when I go to RSA, uh, I think about uh, my current security capabilities and I think about three years down the road, mm-hmm. what, what I'm going to have to deal with from a challenge standpoint, and I try to put it in context. And what I realized is that we invested in a chief uh, data scientist for security mm-hmm. uh, about two and a half years ago. And what we told them is, we have all these technology tools that produce all of this data. Do me a favor, put the, organize that, put it in a big data environment, run models against it, and tell me where we should have deployed resource and do cyber hunting. Hmm. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. You know, I'd be happy to do that. And he did, willingly. What I realized is I had a, a wonderful, talented individual that was, I misdirected. I basically pointed at the wrong thing. What I should have said is create models to drive security controls in real time. And that's where the action is because I've got four different separate technology instances of UBA capability in the environment that that all work. Mm -hmm. But if I step back, they're all the same model-driven security. Mm -hmm. And so it's different technology capabilities, uh, products, but it's the same thing. But I never saw it that way. Mm -hmm. So we deployed them in point solutions as opposed to bringing it holistically together. And now what we're trying to do is say, the cybersecurity of the the future, the uh, professional of the future, is a data scientist. Mm -hmm. It's not... It's not a technical geek like me. Do you see them, and a lot of organizations I know have done this, do you see the uh, security folks working closely with the data scientists? Because the data scientists know the data. The security people know all the weird stuff in your network, right? And the, the conglomeration of the two, I think, is really where you get the most bang for your buck. That's exactly right. Um, although, we don't want to just put them together mm-hmm to leverage each other's expertise. We want to put them together to leverage each other's skill and ultimately to transfer that skill. Mm-hmm. We, so you want your data scientists to become security people. Yes, and vice yeah, versa. Sure. Yeah, no, That's pretty cool. Um, you know, there's an interesting thing ahead, on that, though, to keep in mind, too, because I watch this with the military. Uh, you, can, th- you want them to be conversant with each other and knowledgeable, but, but, and I'm happy to be proven wrong on this, what the military found was if you try to take, like, for example, an Intel analyst and train them how to be an operator and take an operator and try to be an Intel analyst, you kind of ruin both. And what they figured out was that you need a common way to be able to communicate. You need a clear understanding of what each other does and then let them be good at what they're good at. And it'll, it'll be curious to see how that comes out from a security perspective. I mean, you always have people that can translate, get in the middle of it, do all those different types of things. Um, but I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that that comes forward. I mean, what you're describing, Jim, is the way that we're going to work going forward is yeah. very different than anything we've done, yeah. very different than anything we were trained to do. That's exactly N- right. None of us were trained on this. So not only do we have to figure it out, we got to figure it out in a way that works and you know, bring I think, new people up into it. I think, Michael, what you're saying was absolutely true um, because the job function in a cyber perspective versus the, the modeler, the data scientist, there was no... Uh, similarities. There, there, there was nothing, mm-hmm. you know, that was common ground. But today with models essentially driving our core security controls, data scientists know how to work with models. They may not know right. how to work, you know, with the technology behind it, 
but they understand models. So that's right, the and common that's the key. ground. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. That's the key. They don't have to understand. We don't have to go teach them stack. They don't have to understand everything about security and programming. If they understand the model and the impact and they can communicate that to somebody else in a way that's effective, everybody wins. Mm, no, I agree with that. Yeah. Certainly. And I think we as security professionals, we're going to have to learn how to communicate that way too. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. Um, one of the other challenges that we cover on the show a lot and we talk a lot about is endpoint security. And uh, as, as you know, Jim, the offerings that we have available today in the endpoint security space are just so numerous, more than ever before. Mm. How do you wade those waters and make decisions about which security controls are going to be in place in your endpoints and how do you enforce those with all of the different offerings you have today? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it is a crowded field, and there are more and more choices uh, available every day. Every yeah. day yeah. Uh, so, first of all, our philosophy is to work with early-stage companies. I like um, that. And that means immature technology, but we're not shy about um, uh, using our expertise and our experience from a practical perspective to shape the mm -hmm. direction that the product goes in. And early stage companies want that. They, they, yes. they want that, uh, that driver. So Michael and I do Startup Security Weekly. We talk about that concept all the time and encourage larger companies to do that, encourage startups to find a partner to work with in those early stages. Exactly. Yeah. So frankly, if the company has somebody responsible for sales, that's late for us. We, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we, we want to get involved with the founder and mm -hmm. we want to influence the, how that product's going to evolve and make it enterprise ready from our perspective to, mm -hmm. to make that work. So um, that's our primary preference. Now in the endpoint game, I have four years at Aetna, we've swapped out the entire endpoint three times. Right? Wow. Now, e wow. each time we've done it, um, the cost for that has either stayed the same or gone down. That's good. Right? And we've upgraded the technology capability each time that we've made that leap. Now, mm -hmm. the reason that worked, uh, in, in you know, uh, full disclosure, is the first one we implemented was, uh, at the time, it was Mir 3, uh, and, uh, uh, and they had just got bought by FireEye. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we deployed it in a hurry because... Um, uh, you know, I got one of those tap on the shoulders from uh, law enforcement saying, we see some unusual traffic. You may mm. want to look into that, right? Yeah. And so we did, deployed it, turned out to be benign, but in three months we had a full mm -hmm. uh, endpoint protection capability in place. But it was noisy. Uh, it, it, it constrained us from a technology performance standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, and we decided to look for something new because the technology we implemented, I implemented at DTCC eight years previously, mm -hmm. right? So I said, okay, let's try to find something new uh, and uh, game-changing. And so I chose another capability, and I think I was the second enterprise to buy it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first one was the investor. So we were early, <laughs> right? So we bought it, deployed it. Um, we went through the normal white-knuckle engineering ride to mm -hmm. optimize it, to get it to perform well, and to give us the response time that we were looking for. Uh, and that took uh, probably a year and a half. Um, and then I got approached by another endpoint mm -hmm. uh, protection company that had um, really an industry-leading platform. And they said, we want your business. And I said, I, I can't justify the cost of ripping out endpoint you know, capability across 100,000 endpoints unless I can do it at a zero-cost uh, increase. In other mm -hmm. words, I don't want any. And I'd already had a significant savings from the previous one. Uh, and um, and they agreed to it. So then we went through our third implementation, 
much upgraded the technology capability, but our costs have been uh, the same. Now, we're at the point now where we will be evolving away from traditional uh, uh, antivirus. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll use an open source antivirus tool hmm. uh, and largely for regulators to feel more feel comfortable yeah. from our standpoint, the uh, the whole endpoint protection game has changed, as you alluded mm -hmm. to, and um, and so that's kind of uh, that's our approach going forward. I can't tell you if I come back a year from now and we're having a conversation. Yeah, that'll be the same. It, I can't say it will be the same, but um, that's our plan. When you are uh, shopping for endpoint protection vendors, how much do you go with the ones that have a limited amount of functionality but do that really well? versus some of the larger companies that they have somewhat fatter endpoint protection agents, but they do a lot more. So they build in the ransomware into it. They build in some whitelisting capabilities. Um, and sometimes when you go to the small, they're like, yeah, like we do ransomware protection like really well, right? So how do you balance that? Yeah, so t uh, three things we look for. One is um, we like um, um, uh, internet-based uh, capability. Uh, amended to uh, a host-driven uh, capability in the enterprise um, because that offloads traffic, network traffic. So you like the endpoint providers that they'll collect some stuff on the endpoint, but largely they're sending it up to the cloud and doing the... Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't blame you for that. I and like I that. think that's, you know, with all the you know movement to cloud, that's yeah. that's probably the right direction anyway. Um, the second thing we... we um, we, we want is performance mm -hmm. and um, and we've got a VDI infrastructure that the performance has to be within a certain tolerance to make everything else work mm -hmm. so from an availability standpoint that you know it, it's got to be industrial strength and, and perform so we're not the multi-function uh, yeah. we, we'd yeah. like something that just does one or two things really well and the third is we want something model enhanced and ultimately model driven Mm -hmm. So we'd rather use models to interrogate information and quickly come to conclusions because they can do it faster than, you know, we can. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the endpoint protection capabilities are adopting and implementing machine learning capability, and we see that as kind of essential. Is, is that a strategy, too? Because I get concerned when um, I think companies of your size can have a data scientist on staff and do some of your own modeling and smart things that other companies are doing. But I worry about smaller companies that are like, oh, yeah, we're going to do our own data modeling, but they don't have enough resources to do that well. So they almost have to rely on the vendor to do some of that. Do you balance that as well and say, our data scientists are going to do this, but you know what, we're going to utilize some of these other models and then correlate some of those models together? Uh, we're probably a lot more self-sufficient from an engineering perspective and from a modeling perspective uh, where we don't rely a whole lot on the vendors for that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, uh, you know, that's kind of been our posture. But in the middle tier uh, enterprise market, um, I think there has to be more reliance on the vendor to provide model support. Right. The good news is I think the capabilities and choices that we have today have improved tremendously that I think a middle-tier enterprise can get away with that. Mm -hmm. You said you had uh, 100,000 endpoints. Mm -hmm. um, how do you do vulnerability and patch management for 100,000 endpoints? And this is the I'm like, this is the industry that I was in for a while. So yeah. Uh, yeah. it's a unique opportunity for me to sit down with someone in, in your position and ask them that. So. Yeah, so there's um, part of it is uh, the technique um, and part of it is the technology. And as I think you know from your experience, um, a lot of us get up, caught up in the technology part mm -hmm. of it. It's, it's actually more about the technique. So I'll start with 
Um, there are assets. We have IT assets. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing the assets that we have and the risk classification of those assets is essential. Because... Yay. <laughs> um, Tried it, to hammer that into the industry for, for so long, so it's good that it's, it's resonating. Yeah. It, it, uh, it's, it's significant because the reality is we don't treat all IT assets the same. When you have 100,000, how could you, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is we're going to treat the highest risk assets with more care and feeding mm -hmm. than the lowest risk assets. And that's okay. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, and so um, the first thing is to understand kind of the asset inventory. The second is that there are two main processes. When we deploy the technology, that's a process. And in that process, we want to make sure when we de deploy that technology, it follows the standard for that configuration every time we do it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a discipline that has to be in place. Now, to the degree that we deploy technology that doesn't map to that standard, that's a defect that goes back to the root cause of the deployment capability. Mm. Now, once we have that in a disciplined way where we're actually measuring that uh, consistently and adjust, making adjustments based on that, then the second part um, uh, is the change control. So software changes, uh, vendors tell us they have new patches, that's unpredictable. We can't control that. It's, it is what it is, and it's growing. Um, so that's the change control process. So what we want to do is make the changes, test the changes, and then test the changes against our standard configuration again, and then put it in production. And we want to speed up that process as much as possible. Now, th that's on the technique side. Then there's the technology tool side. Mm -hmm. Today, we have tools available, inquiry tools, to say, uh, you know, do we have that version of open source in our environment? Right. And if so, which applications mm, are, are running on the servers that have that vulnerability? Right. And how critical is it and who owns it? Right? Exactly. Those are awesome questions to, to have answers to. Exactly. And the more we can get the information to the owner, yeah. that's the person that's actually going to do something mm -hmm. about it. And, um, and that's where automation kind of supports that. And we have some tools today that, um, frankly... Uh, inventory management mm -hmm. should not be a problem. Asset classification should not be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you commit to the technique first and then uh, to su support it with the technology capability, I think it's all there. How much of those technologies are, are homegrown in-house? Yeah, I know you're going to ask that question. <laughs> so I have one group, um, mm -hmm. and it's the, uh, it's the server team, mm -hmm. and they insisted on building their own tool. And I kept saying, you know, we have third-party tools that you know, yeah, do this just like, as well. No. And they're like, no, we have to, do, we have to build it ourselves. Mm -hmm. They built the tool. It's machine learning capability. Mm -hmm. It's a big data kind of application, so that was kind of sexy to them anyway. Yeah, yeah. They built it. It works. Uh, and uh, and they, they've patented and they're celebrating. They think you know, it's wonderful. Well, I found the most successful vulnerability and patch management programs have a component like that. Just so you know, Jim, I talked to a lot of organizations about it. I'm most impressed when they're like, well, we built this yeah. ourselves. Okay, how does it work? You just <laughs> made my job a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to throw that back at me now. So. But, you know, kudos to them. Uh, it is a, uh, a capability. Yeah, like, see, you gave us a hard time, Jim. Paul said it's good. I know. I know. That's exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> it's all right. They deserve it. They, they uh, have done a good job. So we actually have today a pretty good story to tell. Now, mm -hmm. truth be told, I'm, f you know, four years into my tenure. Um, I took a few swings and missed at this mm -hmm. previously, uh, as they did as well. We did together. 
Uh, we have a pretty good story to tell today, mm -hmm. but it took us four years to get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, it can be a long road, but I think overall it's, it's definitely worth it. Yeah. So. Uh, Michael, more, did, what, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, let's talk on that. So how did you, for other CISOs listening, what do they need to know that it's okay to take a swing, miss, learn from it, take another swing, miss, learn from it, and get to the right outcome? It, what are maybe some of the top lessons that you, that you have there for somebody else in that same position who's maybe a little paralyzed right now because they don't want to they don't want to fail they've got to prove that they can get it done that failure is not an option what, how do you help them get past that yeah so the concept that um, we use is embedding controls into uh, business processes that are owned by other people um, because if we try as security professionals to be the implementers. Um, will never be successful, and it's not a sustainable model. Um, any big business today, IT is a big part of that. And deploying technology and managing technology, these are you know, significant business processes. And so what we try to do is take the control standards, embed them into a business process or an IT management process, and, um, which I'm using for business process here, and we don't try to influence or change the ownership of the process. We try to instrument the owner with information about how that process is performing, show defects for the owner to adjust, and then we share that information with three levels in the organization. Now, the reason for that is the security people do not and should not be the police. They should be the enablers. And they should be the authoritative source of the KPI information to make that business process or IT management process successful, however success is defined. And then that information should be shared with three levels in the organization as long as you start with the lower level first and then work your way up. And if you do that, over time, the natural forces of an enterprise mm -hmm. drive the behavior to the right behavior over time. You know, it, so when you, ahead, it, as a as a guiding principle, then is that obviously at at your level uh, in the industry and at your career point, you can come in with that. Do you still have to sell it? Do you still have to sell to the other business leaders? Listen, I'm going to let you do what you do. I'm going to help you do it better. And here, let me help make that easier. Is that a is that an easy sell, or are there still some some sit down and and help them understand it? Maybe understand them a little bit better steps along the way? Yeah, so um, first of all, security professionals spend the majority of their time convincing other people to do what they don't want to do. That's the nature of our <laughs> job, right? right. Mm -hmm. So the whole notion of selling is not tangential. It's core <laughs> to what we do, and it actually defines success or failure for the security professional in today's environment. I'm you know, 100% convinced of that. So um, so we do have to sell it. Now, I typically um, defer back to a model that I've had success with, which is don't talk about the risk. Now, I know that sounds, um, you know, crazy, but um, here's why. If you say to a process owner that the cost of that process is X and I can help you decrease the cost of that process to Y, are you interested? Um, nobody in their right mind is going to say, I'm not interested. Tell me more. And that's how the security capability really should be positioned. Because if you're eliminating defects 
from your process, then you don't have to fix defects. So there's no cost of fixing the defects. So your costs actually go down in terms of total cost of ownership. And so we sell that at all three levels. Now, there, there are a lot of IT people that said, look, I've been deploying technology for a long time. We have this methodology and process. We've done it this way. It works. And I'm not interested in making changes. The worst thing to do is to say, you have to do it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But the best thing to do is to say, okay, let's look at the total cost of ownership for that IT asset over a period of time using your method. And let's yep. quantify that. And then let's make some changes and adjustments to your process and measure the outcome of that. And if the costs go down, let's go with the lower cost option. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it, it, that's it a makes great and, and Michael and I have talked about this in a, a slightly different lens. And it goes back to what you're saying, like, don't lead with the risk. And I think that's the mistake a lot of security professionals make is we understand the attack vectors, we understand the threats and vulnerabilities, and we go to these different groups and we're like, if you don't change, you're going to get hacked and it's going to be bad. And that just immediately, as Michael says, right, causes friction. And you, most of the time you get nowhere with that. With your approach, Jim, it's so much better because you're leading in with, here's how I want to help you. And that almost always, it always does lead to a much better and more productive conversation. So. Yeah. And, I, you know, frankly, I've run IT jobs uh, in my career. Right. Yeah, having been in their shoes Infrastructure helps too. Yeah. and development, yeah. there is nothing easy about that job. Right? No. It is a really challenging job. So asking them to adjust and change, I understand that resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've been there, and, and frankly, I appreciate what they do. Um, but I also design controls that make their job easier mm -hmm. in the long run and actually reduce costs in the long run. And that, that becomes pretty compelling. Now, uh, I, you know, I'll be the first one to say that not everybody buys in day one, mm -hmm. which is why it's taken me four years to, to get right. to this point. But, um, but it works. I've done five software security programs. And software security typically or traditionally is a tough thing to sell. You have mm -hmm. to tell the enterprise, Oh, you know, we have some defects in our uh, web software, and it's causing our consumers, as they browse it, to be infected in their browser. And then, you know, they have fraud that they experience down the road. And so a senior executive says, okay, well, how many of those consumers contact us about this defect? Uh, none. <laughs> okay, so none of them contact us, and we're supposed to spend millions of dollars to fix this defect? I don't get it. Why would we do that? And, the, and that's too... You don't want to even go there. Right. You just want to say... Software development is a business process that we spend a lot of money on. And would you like to get the same value for less money? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is yes, then stop creating defects and then fixing and, and paying for the cost of fixing the defects. Just eliminate the defects. Here's how you eliminate the defects. Right. No, I, I like it. Um, what is your talk topic for InfoSec World? You're speaking the three T's of cybersecurity. Excellent. So talent, tools, and technology, and kind of the right mix for using those three essential ingredients, uh, you know, to, to be a resilient program. We agree there. Uh, John Strand and I have given the analogy of people, processes, and technology, right? And you need a combination of all three. And you, you know, we say that and we're like, well, people are just like, Paul, you're just saying that. No, we give examples, right? There's the chess player example, uh, the Kasparovs of the world that played the computer and then teams that did it with the proper people, not the smartest chess players, but smart people and the right tools and processes. And they 
they beat the computer, right? So when you give examples like that, it sounds like that's a, a kind of what you're going to be talking about as well, which I think is so important, right? Everyone, most people I talk to get to uh, at some point a juncture where they're like, well, I can just buy that tool, right? And that's going to solve my problem. I'm like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that, right? Yeah, actually, if uh, CISOs were measured on tool inventory, mm. we'd do pretty well. Absolutely, I absolutely. <laughs> I, think, I think our tenure would go up, but yeah. uh, we're, we're not measured on that. Well, and speaking of uh, tools and technology, we're going to talk about uh, some product landscape things happening in the enterprise security news, which is coming up next. Jim, thank you very much. Thank you.